Hey, welcome to the Mr. Bill podcast. My name is Mr. Bill and my guest today is Jesse Carden, better known as Subtronics. Uh, he's a dubstep producer with releases on Deadbeats, Subcarbon and his own label Cyclops Recordings and he's had high profile collabs with artists such as Grizz, Rusko, Moody Good, Kazo and many, many more. Uh, he's played pretty much every major festival in the United States as well as Australia and his now that's what I call Rhythm 5 mixtape. It's probably one of my favorite sets of the year. It's got like a million fucking tracks in it just doubled on top of each other. It's really impressive. Um, before we jump into the interview, I wanted to let people know that my Patreon is officially live. We have several tiers for subscribers, all with their special perks, such as bonus episodes, merch bundles, Discord roles, subscriptions to my website, and even having me play your track on this podcast and give it my 100% honest feedback. Um, but the most important thing is, no matter what level you subscribe at, you'll get these episodes earlier than the general public. Um, the details are at patreon.com forward slash Mr. Bill's Tunes, and I'll talk more about this in subsequent episodes. But yeah, if you want to find out more about that, that is patreon.com forward slash Mr. Bill's Tunes. And finally, if you want to become a better producer, go to my web to my website, mrbillstunes.com to sign up as a hardcore Ableton ear, and uh, you'll get access to tons of tutorials and whatnot. Um, but yeah, having said that, uh, let's get to the interview. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're 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 fuck yeah dude nice well yeah thanks for uh thanks for coming on the podcast i appreciate it of course i'm stoked to be here i'm honored fuck yeah um yeah what, what were you doing at the studio um so past few days we have just like a, cu- a couple festival live stream sets coming up um we wrapped up edc last week and basically this entire week has been like a bat we were we're hiring this like a like a third party company to uh do like this kind of I don't want to like give it too much away, but we're just kind of doing this crazy like hologram 3D kind of immersive XR thing. Um, so we've been really back and forth basically all hours of the night every day um, trying to get everything worked out. I was up until about seven in the morning, um, you know, back and forth thing with uh, just like the whole team trying to get shit sorted because we've pushed back our deadline, I think, like four times now and we still haven't sent it in. And uh, so I was up doing that and then... Ran out of time, slept for like two hours, and then woke up, kept working on it, and then realized I was super late to go record for this other festival that I basically ran over there as fast as I could. Just got back from there. Um, and they're actually texting me right now because um, uh, I made a few mistakes in the set, so I'm trying to like splice over some corrections and stuff like that. Right, right. Um, Damn, it's yeah, crazy uh, that like uh, all the lockdown stuff still hasn't like at all affected how much you're really like working uh, on set stuff. Oh, absolutely. Um, well, it's funny because like uh, when I when it first kind of popped off, uh, <laughs> I was like, okay, so I definitely need to launch a Twitch and I definitely need to do like a ton of live streams. And it was like probably like two weeks in where I was like, oh my God, like I have to come up with a new set like every single weekend. And normally like I spent like months on sets and I'm just tweaking them into infinity over and over again every single weekend um, for different crowds that, you know, won't be tired of hearing the same stuff because they live in different cities. Um, But it's especially challenging just because like everyone on the internet has probably seen the last set. So you have to like change it dramatically every single week. So I kind of quickly realized I can't do them every weekend. Um, 
and I kind of, it was probably like three weeks ago, so I was like, I'm going to not do live sets and I'm just going to work on as much music as I possibly can so that the next time I live stream, I'll have as much new music as possible. Um, but it's definitely been, uh, like, even though I haven't really been traveling at all, like workload wise, like I've been like wake up to go to sleep nonstop on at least like something, whether it's like new music or just putting a set together. Damn, that's sick. It's cool that you can like keep the the like routine and flow of working hard going during this time because I feel like at least like I I wouldn't say like I'm a like lazy person or anything like that. I feel like I generally work sort of hard most of the time. Right. But I feel like the the first few weeks of this thing, I was just like, yeah, fuck it, and just like <laughs> there, was, there was like no pressure to do anything because I didn't have to like be anywhere and I didn't have to be like doing right anything specifically. So I was just like sick. I can like take an actual break. Right. And you know, sometimes when you're like, oh, you know what, I'm going to take a vacation or something and you travel somewhere and chill. It's not really like you stop working. Like I took a, a for lack of a better word, vacation to Las Vegas earlier this year with my girlfriend just to check it out because I never checked it out before. Right. And like the whole time I was still like working on music and shit in the hotel. And oh, yeah. I've I've had the, I've had a conversation with a handful of friends, definitely a bunch of times, where it's I don't think I'm physically capable of vacationing. Where it's just like I'm such I'm just so anxious about everything all the time, and just so worried about all the variables, and like also just like I don't know if motivated is the word, but it's just like failure is not an option. Is kind of the mentality. Um, so it's like any second I'm not working on stuff, uh, my mind is racing about either a I'm slacking and I'm I'm lazy and I need to be working harder, and b there are, you know, literally thousands of kids out there who are working, you know, constantly. So if I want to keep up with the pack and I want to be able to earn my spot, you know, I, I just got to have to fucking work constantly. And even even working constantly now, tunes come out all the time where it's like, fuck, I need to work harder. Um, and it's definitely like a constant insanity that's just been accelerating in its severity for probably like almost 10 years now, right. where it's just like the, the further I get, the more I'm unable to stop. And it's like, it's, it's, it's like, it's good and bad. Cause one, it's involuntary and it's definitely obsessive or it's and it's an obsession and it like takes a huge toll on my mental health. But like at the same time, like I'm definitely very productive and that like, I physically cannot get myself to not work on at least something like pretty much all day, every day. And like, I'll have like maybe one day a week where it's like, okay, I worked enough and I'm fucking exhausted. I'm going to watch TV for like a few hours mm -hmm. or something like that. But like, I think it's almost just like watching the scene online and I'm so unfortunately addicted to social media that like, I'm just constantly seeing shit online where it's like, damn, that's a fire under my ass. I got to step my shit up. And I'm just constantly in a state of like, wow, I need to work harder. Wow. I need to work harder. Like all these kids are crushing it. Like I need to fucking prove my worth. And it's just, it's definitely a constant obsession that I'm unable. I, I truly believe that I would be unable to vacation. Like if I went anywhere on vacation and I'd be on Ableton or on my phone or on iTunes, like the entire fucking time for sure. Right. Right. Um, yeah, would would you say you see that kind of workaholic as work whatever like being a workaholic as um like more of a problem or more like do you think uh, it's more beneficial or more problematic for you in in general? It's definitely I would say more beneficial because like it's probably the main reason why I've accomplished, you know, anything that I have accomplished um and it definitely like gives I think it gives me an edge in that like I'm just constantly fucking working on shit. Um it's weird like personally it's bad but output wise it's good like career wise and like it's definitely the reason why i've been able to be successful it just like really takes a toll on me mentally but i'll fucking suck it up because i've definitely had you know way fucking worse jobs that do way more worse things to my head you know like i mean fucking i used to push carts for target like in snowstorms so it's like okay like i can i can fucking deal with this yeah, no this problem is, this is a little better for sure yeah it's kind of crazy um 
like most people I talk to uh, on this podcast are producers and and what seems to be a recurring theme with almost everyone I talk to is that um, there's so much self-worth put on to productivity, right? Like your ability to create and your ability to be productive and like your output and all of that stuff. It's so many people like put so much self-worth on that. And it's almost like if they don't put anything out or if they're just sitting around too much and then they have this sudden realization of like, fuck, <clears throat> I haven't done anything in a few weeks or whatever. Oh, yeah. Um, it's like it, it almost can just like spiral into a depression or something because you and then it's, it's so weird to like put that much weight and self-worth on just like fucking creating things right right and it's it's i feel like for me and it's so silly and like i recognize that it's like kind of inherently not wrong but like just a little bit strange that like for me i'm just like a really it i i feel like the way i get through the character defects is by being loud and admitting them but i'm definitely a super insecure person um and i'm i'm like naturally really competitive so for me it's just i'm constantly seeing people do insane crazy awesome things and i'm just always like wow i got it i'm constantly thinking back to myself of like how can i step my shit up how can i you know get on the scoreboard in the same way um and so the way that I feel like I'm just constantly being pushed to like want to just be working harder is just seeing all the incredible things that everyone else is doing, you know, and wanting to be a part of that conversation. Yeah, I, I think like if getting on the scoreboard, as you say, is important to you, then you kind of have to be that way, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, um, have you ever fucked around yeah. with meditation? Um, a little bit. So extremely long story short, um, I was sent to rehab for weed. Um, and there was definitely a lot of like meditation components throughout. And it's like a bunch of different rehabs too, like different outpatients and programs and stuff like that. And almost all of them always had like some sort of meditation component. So there was some sort of like intro to it, although I didn't really like mentally buy into like any of it because I was an angsty little shithead. But after the fact, um, especially interacting with people who are really about meditation, like for example, Squanto and such, uh, um, I've definitely been more into it and open to it. And especially within like the past six months, um, just cause I definitely, I've been diagnosed with anxiety and ADHD and OCD and all that stuff, but anxiety really fucking gets to me really gnarly sometimes, especially in the form of like hypochondria. Um, and there's been a lot of times where I'll be sitting there like freaking out about something, like convinced that I'm dying. Um, and just breathing, you know, will help so fucking much. Mm. Um, and it, and it really is, you know, to some degree, a form of meditation. And a, a lot of times I would make the analogy, you know, when it comes to like either spinning poi or playing kendama, a lot of that stuff, what, what is happening in your brain, the way you're kind of defragging yourself, um, is a really similar kind of net result that meditation would also have. I also got a meditation app that I was, uh, following along with on planes and it, and it really, really fucking helped. Was it um, the Sam Harris one? I forget what it was called. I don't think so. I what think was it was more like headspace. Maybe it was headspace. Yes. Yeah, headspace. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So I've been doing the Sam Harris one lately and I've, I've found it to be super beneficial. I mean, essentially what the practice is, is you sit there and you agree with yourself that you're going to sit mm -hmm. there and try and just be with like the state of being right. And then like right. any thought that comes into your head, as soon as it comes in, you just try to observe it as a thought that's coming into your consciousness and then you just try to like what you'll notice is as soon as you observe the thought is it just disappears and you also right. can't realize where it comes from or where it goes. <laughs> right. Like, thoughts are the weirdest fucking thing ever. But yeah, I don't know. I just find this like this, what the exact thing you're talking about, like the ability to not shut it off and the ability to mm -hmm. like, oh, the, you know, whatever side of it you may see to be problematic, this seems like maybe a potential solution. I mean, it's been at least a potential solution for me at times yeah. i mean i haven't been meditating that much i've done it like maybe 30 times in total so i'm not like a fucking expert on the subject or anything right but yeah i don't know like just from the very basic 
amount of times that I've done it, I've uh, I found found it to be beneficial for that specific problem, like having right. too, too much coming in all the time uh, and not being able to control like how how much you're thinking and how much you're wanting to do and like all of these emotions and just everything that's like showing up in consciousness right because emotion like like an emotion coming up is like the same thing as a thought coming up or like a pain in your body is the same oh, absolutely really the same thing as a thought coming up it's just like a thing like a cloud of sensation or a cloud of it's like a just... chemical electronic response you know right right and it's, it's like a quantifiably physical thing yeah exactly yeah um I want to I want to talk about rehab for weed. That's interesting. Was that was that a recent thing or was that a old thing? So basically, um, I think when I was like thirteen or fourteen, um, a bunch of my friends were like, "Hey, let's smoke weed," and I was like, "That sounds lit. Yeah, let's do that." Um, I don't think that was a word yet, but so like I started like experimenting, like smoking weed out of apples and shit like that. And my parents are hippies, so they didn't inherently like feel negatively about weed. And I think actually originally when they first found out I was smoking, they were like, hey, if you keep your grades like up a certain level and like your homework is done, like you can smoke weed on the weekends. You know what I mean? Like, just don't be a fucking idiot. Um, and being the person with the, the diagnoses that I have um, definitely just took the wrong path with that. Um, the first thing I got in trouble with was like I stole a bunch of weed from my dad. Um, I had like a weird, like kleptomania phase when I was like 13 or 14. Um, and I got in a ton of trouble at public school. Um, and at the end of the year, they didn't expel me, but they recommended that I just switch schools. Um, so I like, I think I mean, what it was, was I stole a teacher's wallet, which was like, definitely not, not cool. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, so it, and I, I, it was just, it was honestly more of like the thrill of it than it was like, I need money for like fucking crack. But anyway, um, so my parents definitely freaked out. And my dad, who's also in the music industry and more with like rock and roll has a lot of experience managing people like that are in the rooms and in recovery. Um, and just with that and my ADHD and everything involved. And I was also like in and out of therapy, like my whole life for various things, whether it's like arachnophobia or like separation anxiety. It's just, I've always had a fucking like 504. Um, so going back to therapy after like basically having to switch schools, uh, the therapist was like, you should go to an outpatient program to stop smoking weed because clearly it's like really bad. And at the same time, like I was on Lexapro and I was on Wellbutrin. So the psychologist or I forget if it was a psychologist or psychiatric i don't fucking know but they were like yeah you can't smoke weed because the way that ssris break down in your liver weed will enter weed will like impede that so my parents were like okay grades are shit lying to us um interact uh, like it interferes with the meds like you're not allowed to smoke weed and me being a 15 year old was like sure and so i just kept smoking weed um <laughs> long story short sent to outpatient drug tested for like once a week for like probably like a year or so they eventually gave up realized i was never going to stop smoking weed like a week after um, I get out of there for the first time. I actually go to my first ever dubstep show, which was Rusco, probably in like 2009 or 10. Um, and I was doing a, a mushrooms at the time because they don't show up on drug tests. So I ate way too many mushrooms um, at the Rusco show. Complete like epiphany, life changing, eye opening experience. Um, and then um, I kind of was just like wandering around the venue, like in complete ego death. Um, and since I was only 17, I wandered into the 21 and up section. They kicked me out. I didn't know what it was. So I wandered back there, like not having any idea what was going on. They sent me to this back room. And then I thought being in that back room was like a part of the trip that I was having. And I had to just like wake myself up. So I like stood up and like ran headfirst into the wall, basically thinking it would like jar me out of where I was and I'd get back to the show. And they're like, all right, so this kid definitely needs to go to the hospital. Long story short, I wake up in the hospital with my parents around me crying. Doctors told them I had like overdosed on Molly and meth and shit like that. And they gave me the ultimatum. Like you can go to rehab 
after you finish high school um, and then go to college after or you're on your own. And me being a 17 year old was like, uh, I guess I'll just go to fucking rehab. So I go to rehab where they just absolutely fucking brainwash the shit out of my parents for a while. Um, scare the fuck out of them. Tell them weed is evil, all this shit. Um, I was there for about a month and then I moved to a halfway house in New Haven for about five months where I got bullied relentlessly. Um, when I finally was off blackout period, I got my computer. Um, I had like dabbled with like reason and FL and logic a few times, um, back when I was in high school, but I was like watching like boy in a band tutorials. I think I watched a few year tutorials. Um, I was watching like seamless R and stuff or the R is silent. Um, and, uh, (laughs) and, uh, after a while, I got my computer back and I was like, all right, well, I was working at Acme before I was sent to rehab and I was laid off. So I had like a, a few hundred dollars from unemployment that had like stacked up. So I just spent all of that on Ableton, Massive and like a bunch of vengeance samples. Um, That's cool and that I you started- like, bought them instead of just like pirating them, even though you only had right. a few hundred dollars. Right. No, I was definitely really lucky in that sense. And I probably would have pirated them if I didn't have the money um, at that stage. But I was like in a halfway house and I just started producing like because I had literally nothing to do at all. I was producing all day, every day for five months. I was there. I was getting bullied. I manipulated my parents into letting me back home, started smoking weed again, sent like a different outpatient, was there for a while, eventually left, got in trouble for smoking weed again. I was sent to a different halfway house in Scranton. I lived there for six months. And then I graduated from that halfway house and then lived in Scranton and then went to like a junior college there because I was already like a year and a half late to going to college. That's where uh, that's where like the office and campus go and shit. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Correct. Cool, cool. Um, I don't want to like talk shit on cities, but uh, honestly, no, fuck Scranton. I fucking hate that place. <laughs> and every time I go back, I'm angry. Um, it was like definitely the worst three years of my entire life by a considerable margin. And I fucking hated it there. And I hated everyone there. Fucking like pro-life stickers everywhere it's like a really conservative place um and i don't want to get political but like definitely i am like a definitely super liberal person so i was just very uncomfortable and really alienated all the fucking kids were like super fucking racist everywhere like in the college like when we would be teaching evolution like kids would be snickering and making fun of it and i wanted to like throw a textbook at their head um and i just couldn't stand it um so after about Three years of going to a junior college there and living in Scranton, going to AA meetings every single day, sponsoring kids, having a bunch of different sponsors, lying about drug tests every week. Um, I eventually graduated there, transferred back to Temple, where um, I was at for like a year and a half. And I was unbelievably fortunate enough because most people don't have this opportunity. And it's definitely an enormous level of privilege that my parents were paying for my rent and paying for college while I was at Temple. Um, And I was incredibly lucky on that sense. But my grades were fucking garbage because i have zero executive functioning skills i had like a 1.2 gpa and it was around this time since i moved back to philly i started was like playing some stuff playing some stuff locally um i had already been like releasing music on like prime audio i had made like a ton of friends um through google hangouts and just through mixler chats and soundcloud um and like all of my friends at life at that point were like all kids from the internet um from all over the basically the globe um and we were all like in this kind of just like weird niche subgenre of like not popular, super repetitive, weird dubstep that like I guess later went on to being called rhythm, even though like what a lot of us were making wasn't really rhythm at all at the time. But like that's when I kind of like became a part of that like really small community that started to grow. And like all of my friends were just in Google Hangouts and Skype calls every day. Um, and then after about three years of Temple, 
Um, I started having enough shows and my grades were garbage enough where it was looking like I was going to have to either drop out or just take a leave of absence. And my dad, who's in the music industry, was actually the one who suggested like, hey, if you're getting shows like every weekend, you should just take a leave of absence, you know, because like I ultimately was getting a degree to hopefully go into the music industry as like either a manager or a venue owner or an agent or something like that. I always knew I wanted to work in the music industry, um, but I never expected to even be an artist. I thought that would be too impossible. Um, well, it's always like I think... Um having some sort of business background is super useful though like, oh, yeah. as an artist because like once you go into the industry it's like a lot of artists who don't just don't have this sort of objective business background and can see things from like the business perspective are often like kind of too absent-minded to think about anyone else other than themselves and they get like really egotistical and like self-righteous about like you know wanting all the things because they're the artist and they're the talent and whatnot and then they just sort of get outed from the industry pretty quick because they're just like a pain in the ass to work with that is fucking true and i never even i never even connected those two things but that's definitely super fucking true yeah and then also the other thing is that um it's just useful from, I think, like the perspective of, uh, you know, one of the number one questions I get asked outside of Ableton questions is like, when do I get a manager? When do I get an agent? How do I start right. getting bookings for shows? How do I start releasing music? Uh, would you release independently or with a label? Like all these kind of exterior questions as right. a, like that artists have, right? And mm-hmm. so it seems like you're kind of getting a degree that answers a lot of those. And it's, and it's funny because during that period as well, I had a lot of, I think it's like almost like a rite of passage phase to just have like a bunch of really shit managers who like aren't actually managers, but they say they are. Um, Mm, and I definitely, I definitely went through like three or four of those where it was just like, my first manager was this kid who like literally didn't know anyone or anything and was just like pulling the wool over all of our eyes. But through him, I met a handful of people like through him, I met uh, Damon Trollface, who definitely was one of the first people who took me under their wing and kind of like explained how shit worked. Um, but after that, I was managed by like one of the local promoters. And then through that local promoter, I met someone else who was like a, a little bit less local promoter. And then through him, he like got me with this guy who was acting as my agent, but wasn't actually acting as my agent. He was lying to me about it. And then I reached out to that agent and we totally hit it off. And that agent was actually Eric Silver, who later turned into a manager and is now my current manager now. Um, yeah, man, like, Eric's awesome. I met him like twice now. I think he's <laughs> yeah, he's like yeah. by far my favorite person in the entire industry by a considerable margin. He's like the only person that I have like actual for real one hundred percent complete faith in. Like he could tell me to jump off a bridge, and I would tell. I would say how far. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, and then the other side of that is like there's definitely a lot of just like buzzwords and vocabulary that like I wasn't expecting to really come into play that totally fucking came into play even just like from like business 101 classes that it's just like right, right. things like you never land, really think like landed you know, deals or something like that yeah like. even even just like the difference between like net profit and gross profit you know just like stuff like right. that is actually really helpful or and my dad would always say like you go to college especially if you're going to college for music you're not going for a degree you're going for information and for connections and mm-hmm. for me i i even though i dropped out as like a sophomore and a half um I, I really think a lot of that information helped me out a lot on the other side of the fence with this industry for sure. That's like not the creative side. Right. I want to uh, just circle back a tiny bit to sort of like the start of that story mm-hmm. um, to where you were saying like you had hypochondria a lot. Oh, yeah. Um, do you think, yeah, yeah. Uh, so do you think that that is related to weed because, or did you like have that before? And the reason I ask is because, um, like, I don't really smoke weed that much. I just started smoking it again. 
Right. Uh, and I was smoking it a lot when I was younger. And mm-hmm. the reason I stopped is because I started going to university and because I just had to wake up at a certain day and like get out of bed and walk to the train station, and, like do all these things. Um, I couldn't do it whilst always smoking weed because weed would always make me feel like physically in pain. Right. Like I, I would feel like my, uh, my chest was like, like my ribs were really fragile and mm-hmm. like my chest had like a cavity in the middle of it that was like too deep or something that was like questionable. Damn, I feel that. Yeah. And like, you know, my, uh, if I was like sitting at my computer working for too long, like my hips and my legs and shit would get like really fucking tight and sore and mm-hmm. just, just like a bunch of these really weird, um, things that I was like, I don't know if that like is, you know, some I shit think that for- you um, yeah, for me, it's 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 very strain and like medium dependent. I mean, I've definitely noticed some strains will like make me super anxious and I'll definitely stop smoking them like right away. Um, and it really depends on like where I'm at mentally. There's been times where I definitely slow down on weed just because I'm too stressed out. And then there's times where I'm so stressed out and weed fixes everything. Um, it's so situation and strain dependent for me. Um, and I definitely like have like changed my habits, you know, for times at a time, if that makes any kind of sense. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Where... Uh, where, you know, like, there'll be times where, like, dabs, for some reason, were, like, making me anxious, like, real gnarly, like, for, like, no reason. And so, like, I switched to flour. And then after a while, like, I started to notice myself getting anxious. And then I'd smoke a hash rosin dab and be like, oh, my God, like, I'm not anxious. This is amazing. And then I'm back to smoking hash rosin. And I definitely think that weed has had both negative and positive effects on my hypochondria. I've, I've been an incredibly anxious person. Excuse me. I'm like John Mulaney talking through burps. Um, I've been a really anxious person definitely my whole life. I had, like really really gnarly separation anxiety and and damn near daily panic attacks between the ages of like nine and 15 kind of before i was smoking um and i think one one of the reasons why i initially was so obsessed with weed when i first started smoking to the point where i was sent to outpatient was because it was the first time i had a solution for that anxiety um and my parents were like well you're self-medicating and i'm like yeah but it's it's effective medication you know so a lot of i would say like for me and, and again, everyone is different. There's thousands of cannabinoid receptors in your brain and everyone has different ones in different locations that are affected by different strains and different, you know, moments of their life. But uh, for me, I would say 80% of the time uh, it helps anxiety and about 20% of the time it makes anxiety worse. Um, hmm. I wonder if the strain thing, like you said, you smoke like one strain for a while and then that will start sort of making you anxious and then you'll switch strains and then that will mm-hmm. start making you anxious. I kind of find like I, I've never really had that experience with weed so much because I just have never gone that deep with legal weed. Like when I was right. smoking weed, it was in Australia and that weed there is garbage for starters. Oh, and I secondly, know. Yeah. I'm aware. <laughs> then, <laughs> right, right. And then secondly, um, I just like you can't tell what the weed is, right? Because it's all illegal and you just buy it off a random person. And you just but, fucking cut it up with scissors into a bowl and smoke it out of a Gatorade bottle. Yeah, yeah. With a hose <laughs> and a cone piece and shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so... So I was like smoking weed there. So I've never really had that experience of knowing, oh, this is the one that's making me anxious. I should switch to this other kind of thing. But I've, mm-hmm. I've had that experience with other things, right? Like I've had that experience even with with exercise. Like if I li- like do the same lifting routine too many times in too many days, like my body will just be like, fucking stop. Wow. But like, you know, if I drink the same kind of alcohol too many days in a row, the same thing. My body's just like, fucking please stop. Right. Um, I wonder if it's the same thing with weed. Like if you just keep hammering that same receptor, like the same receptors with the same strain, if you, if that's what your brain is doing, it's just going, Hey man, please like we, these ones need a break. Like, switch Oh to yeah, definitely. Other. I mean, I think there's definitely like a universal just life element with all things of like, Hey dude, balance. You know what I mean? Yeah, like too much sure. of anything is fucking not good. Um, mm. and I, yeah, I think that's the general trend for sure. 
<clears throat> so I, I have a question about glass because that's something I don't fully understand. And I've seen like in some of your Instagram videos, you have like quiet the glass collection. Oh yeah. Um, and <laughs> I, I, I hung out with uh, Aaron Brooks once. Yeah. Uh, who, I, who I know does some art for you. And he had this like glass necklace piece that he would smoke weed out of. That was just like, I don't know, it was really cool looking. And he was like, yeah, this one's worth like 40 grand or something. And I was like, what oh, yeah. the fuck? Like how is like, so I, I don't know. I'm just in, like, could you just give me like a rundown on glass culture and like why? I would fucking love to. Okay. So basically okay. one of the terms that I, I think explains things well is a trap trophy. Um, okay. And so basically the way a lot of these guys who are, you know, finding enormous landfalls of cash through uh, distributing drugs to the society um, need a way to legalize their money. Um, and it's almost uh, akin to like money laundering in a way where the one of the degrees that makes it so expensive is that like a, a piece of art is only as expensive as like the per or is only as valuable as how much someone is willing to pay for it and to some degree. So it's like if someone will put 50 grand down on a piece, um, it almost kind of validates that price. But at the same time, a lot of these artists are like they're rock stars within the community. Um, and it's, it's, it's really weirdly analogous to like electronic music or dubstep where it's like, there's artists that are legendary and there's artists that are on a come up and there's people who are collabing and there's, there's like collabs that'll bring up the little guy working with the bigger guy. Um, but there's just artists that it's like, even just to have their name on it, you know, it's like a Lambo. It's, it's just like a, like a mothership or a combo or a banjo. It's like those I artists. Guess the, the difference is like, um, if you think about it like currency right like uh with a infinitely recreatable currency like say the us dollar where we can just keep printing more of it it kind of has this inflation property where it keeps going down in price every year and the only way to like fix that is to put it into a, a shares or whatever and, and have exactly. those shares keep it. and with electronic music you have like you know a digital file that's infinitely recreatable and distributable but i guess with these glass pieces it's kind of there's only one of them too which is maybe what inflates the price so high too right oh yeah so it's like it's like a, to get a custom piece from like a legendary super famous artist is definitely going to be super expensive but then it's also reinforced with the idea of these trap lords need a way to launder you know large amounts of money so if they can convert the value of fifty thousand dollar cash into the value of oh whoa i'm sorry i, I see my girlfriend I'm looking out the window. I see my girlfriend across the street walking my dog. I didn't even notice she went outside. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, if they can, if they can, you know, establish that fifty thousand dollar value into a piece of glass and then have that backed by the artist being super successful, they can even like insure it. You know what I mean? Um, mm. It gets it gets to that he level of hecticness. I mean, it's just it's just all art. You know, like what dictates how expensive art can get, and it's especially when when the artist who making it who's making it is like super famous and super legendary. It just mm. accelerates that price. I mean, there's rigs so, that I know have gone at auction, especially like the right collabs have been like a hundred thousand dollars plus, you know? So if you like, for instance, um, were making tracks in the, in the same way you do now, but, uh, for whatever reason, digital files were not, uh, recreatable in the way that they are. Mm -hmm. Uh, how much do you think you would put a price point on for one of your tracks for somebody to buy? Oh man, I have no idea. And it's funny because like that is at the same time, like that almost exists in this day and age, which with like the whole concept of dub plates and specials, especially with like within the rhythm community. Um, a lot of people, if you're familiar with the concept of specials, like a lot of people, it's like, say there's like a, a tune you really fucking love, like, 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 okay, polyrhythm, right? So you love polyrhythm and you want to play it out, but you don't want to play it out the same way everyone else does. So you can hit up that artist and be like, yo, can you make me a special? I'll give you a hundred dollars. You make me a special version of this. You only send it 
it to me. You don't send it to anyone else. And that's like my dub that like no one else can have. It's only I can play it. Um, oh, wow. I've, I've never heard of this. Um, let's chat about this. Oh, yeah. Um, so like so, a, good ex- so, a good example of that. Sorry to interrupt. But like a really yeah. good example of that is uh, I have this one. It's a, uh, it's a Rampage remix of Drunk Zelda by Ivory and someone else, but it's an Aeonix special. So I think it's like Aeonix hired Rampage to make an edit of this remix uh, or of this. It was a Ivory remix of Yasuo. Aeonix hired Rampage or Rampage hired Aeonix to make an edit of that song for the other person um, to do that special. And hmm. uh, it's and very you, confusing to credit it uh, in mixes. And you, And then you paid somebody else to get it? Yeah, well, actually, just long story short, they just sent it to me because um, oh, I asked okay. them for tunes, and they're like, "Yeah, fuck it, you can have it." Um, right, but like, so- in, in in theory, like a special is supposed to only really be for one person, and it's it's okay. it's also funny. Like uh, another good example of that is uh, whenever Faizo used to send out his dubs because Faizo was like the hardest person to get dubs from, um, and he would just not send anything to anyone because he was so militant and being afraid about things leaking. Whenever he, mm-hmm. I remember when he first sent me Jotaro before it came out, he would put like a secret watermark in his song so that if it leaked, he could trade the file back to whoever he gave it to so like so let's say he gave it to like five people he would put like a secret watermark that you can't hear that if the song leaks he gets the leaked version he can tell which person leaked it it couldn't be traced back to that person right yeah that's pretty easy to do using um like harmer or something right because you can just yeah. put like spec- spectral stuff in and especially in rhythm it's already so spectral and digital sounding anyway you could easily like seep it in there without it seeming noticeable mm-hmm um, speaking of which, I did that once uh, for a tour announcement. I had a track with Circuit Bent, and then in the breakdown, it like had this big spectral like smear. And yeah. if you ran it through a spectrogram, it was like our tour pace- poster with all the dates. What? That's and so it cool. Was, like, it was like before we had announced the tour as well. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, it was pretty. That's fun. like how Sultan like signed his name in the waveform at the end of that one song. That's that's way harder to do. Like what he oh, did yeah. there is that's so much harder than just putting a spectral image in. Uh, I've tried to do that before too and wrote, write my name, but I I didn't manage to do it. I, yeah, I was impressed that Sultan managed to get that so clean looking. He put out a tutorial. I just I didn't even bother. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm I'm curious about this specials thing. Um, would an equivalent be sort of like if I asked you uh, to take one of your tracks? like, I don't know, the Ganja White and I collab and was like, all right, I want like a version of this specifically to play in my sets. Yeah. Um, and I'll give you like, well, for starters, a, a, how much would you charge for that? And then B, like, uh, do you then just go and make whatever you want, VIP, right. like just VIP it in any way you want? Or do I specifically go like, oh, I would like it like this? Um, I think that, it, I mean, it really kind of depends on the situation. A lot of the times, like if you're hired, I haven't really hired too many people to do specials, but when I, I actually asked Phonon to do a special of Polyrhythm and he was like, what do you want out of it? Like, what do you want me to do for it? Um, so I think depending on, it might just depend on the person, it might depend on the song, it might depend on who's asking, but I mean, some people might just say, fuck it, you're getting what you get. Um, mm-hmm. And some people might like actually take direct and be like what do you want out of this special uh, personally speaking it's really hard for me to like kind of think of a price because i've never actually been hired to do a special once and like i i sold dub plates like fucking five ten years ago like me and cod dubs or like sold one of our dubs for like to some kid for like a hundred bucks um i mean like i know like for remixes like you generally get like around like one or two thousand maybe five thousand for a remix but i i just don't even know you know at this point what i would what i would honestly Ask, I would probably just ask my management and be like, "What do you guys think I should charge for this?" You know, I'm not. Mm-hmm. I'm really not sure. I would say like at least a, like one or two thousand probably. Um, but mm-hmm. I, I just I have very little experience myself. You know, in it, I just know about it, so it's it's kind of hard to say how much it would be. Right. 
Yeah, it also, you could be opening up a can of worms, right? It's like, if you start doing a special and then you're like, fuck, this is too good. Or like... Right, oh, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, because I mean, quite often I've done that before where I've tried to VIP one of my own tracks. And then before I know it, I'm like, you know what? If I just remove the fucking main thing from this, it's basically a new tune and I should just make a new tune out of this. Yeah. Yeah, and that's like that's like how I feel about ghost producing at the same time as like I fucking want credit for it, you know, like I want to play it. <laughs> yeah, actually I was just uh, listening to this talk by Kashmir right before we got on this call and he was talking about how he thinks it's important to write music for other people whether it be like collaboratively like he did with uh like a G6 or uh ghost producing because mm-hmm. then it's like <clears throat> when you're writing your own music, you want to sort of put like well the way he put it is like you want to put everything into it because you want it to be this like pure all encompassing reflection of yourself. And it's like super important to you and everything about it is like very special. But if Mm -hmm. you just ghost produce with somebody or you collaborate on some pop music or some, something like that where you just have a writing credit or not even that um, it's just way easier to see like an objective, very simple package to like give to somebody. Right. Um, And that seems like maybe a helpful skill for sure to have. I, it reminds me of uh, a lot of times whenever I get like really stuck, I'll make stuff that's like completely not what I normally make. And it's kind of a similar sense of just like, well, maybe not. Um, but just a sense of like, all right, I'm not going to like have to live up to the standards of like what my artistic vibe is supposed to be. You know what I mean? Like, I don't have to worry about if it's quote unquote on brand or not. You know, I can just fucking explore creatively with this direction, you know, and it just takes a lot of pressure off. I can see and it. Like I was talking to uh, there was like a thread on Twitter the other day. Or someone's like, how do you deal with writer's block? And it was basically like, uh, you very, very slowly, so slowly you don't even notice it, producing becomes like less and less and less fun until you're like miserable and you're not having fun at all anymore. And then until you make something that's like totally different, you take the pressure off, you don't have to release it, you don't have to keep it under your name even if you want to. But when you take that pressure off, it's like, holy shit, this is fun again. Like I forgot it was actually supposed to be fun. Yeah, I I think it's very helpful. Totally. I think I've actually figured out, at least for myself, what it is that makes writing music fun. And it's the exploratory process. And for me to get into that headspace, I need to feel like very sort of calm and I need to have a lot of patience and I need to like learn a new thing almost. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I need to like go on YouTube and like watch a tutorial and then download a new piece of software and start learning a new synth or some shit. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, fuck, like this is super cool. There's a bunch of new things in this plugin that that work in some way that I've never used before. Like, for instance, I started uh, using Archeria pigments recently Mm -hmm. and it has like all these crazy sequences in the back of it. And you can attach all of those sequences to like parameters in the synth. So you can like create a bunch of note values in this like. 32 step sequencer or whatever and then attach it to like the filter and the pitch and the right like warp modes on the wavetable and like it has an inbuilt granulizer that you can attach it to and like i don't know it's like it's like a really cool synth and you know just learning shit like that um if i was just trying to make music because i had to play it at a show on the weekend i probably would have never opened this synth because i would have been like oh fuck it that's just gonna waste time i just need to get something done yeah um so i find like allowing yourself that time to be like exploratory and stuff can can help a lot and another thing that i found um fuck i almost hit my space bar and stopped recording that was scary (laughs) Um, uh, another thing that uh that i've found helps sometimes and this is like a weird sort of trick or hack or whatever is um 
sort of like the ghost producing thing or, or doing something for somebody else where you don't feel like it needs to be perfect to, mm-hmm. you know, and the same thing you were talking about where you, where you don't feel like you need to have a perfect thing because you're just making it for no reason. Um, yeah. Is sometimes I'll try and make intentionally bad music. Like if I'm going through a sample pack, you know how every, every now and then you'll, you'll like be going through snares or something. You'll just be like, that is the most garbage fucking snare. Like who would ever use that for anything? Right. And right. then you like go past the hi-hat and you're like, like, why is, is that a sample? Like how, how did, how did somebody. Who's picking this? Like who's yeah, going like, to use that? <laughs> exactly. Like who, who the fuck like made that and decided that's great. I'm putting it in the pack. Like mm-hmm. uh, sometimes I'll, I'll go and like pick all of those sounds and just use them. <laughs> Oh my God. And, and try to make like just the worst sounding thing. And and often it actually ends up, it sounds completely different to anything I'd ever make because I'm picking shit that I hate. But right. then on top of it, like um, I'm also working kind of hard at the same time to try and make them into something that I like. Right. And I've found that to be like just a really cool, like weird way of writing music sometimes when you get bored or when you're hitting a wall or whatever. I mean, I think that's like a fascinating idea because I feel like more times often than not, like you're still following that like innate subconscious sense of like, whenever I produce at least like, I'm definitely just like following along. It's a, it's a, it's a long process of trial and error. And when you hear something you like, you keep it. So you go along with it. So even if you're trying to make like something intentionally bad, there's an element of like when you're working on something or fine tuning something, you're like, all right, check mark, move on, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so you're still looking for those parameters that you do enjoy. So I feel like if, if you're trying to make something bad, it still will ultimately end up with something that's good that just sounds different because you force yourself to use like completely different things, you know? Right. Yeah. Speaking of those like parameters and check marks too, um, I also feel like that's why I'm sort of comfortable sharing information and, and not worried about like anybody sounding like me as well, which is a conversation that came up yesterday with, uh, I had an AU5 on the podcast and we were talking about YouTubing and tutorials and stuff right? and how like a lot of producers uh, hoard information because they, oh, yeah. you know, don't want to have anyone know their tricks because they feel like a lot of their style or sound rely- is reliant on those tricks. Um, right. And yeah, I feel like one of the things that came up was like, that that exact thing there's so many parameters and check marks that you're sort of hitting at each point that there's no fucking way that anyone's going to like take exactly that and, and hit all those same parameters and, and it's, it's it's crazy what i've noticed is like a lot of times people will like make sense like i'll be like i'm stuck on making the same sound over and over again like i can't make a new sound and it's like try and use a totally different synth or something like that and like a completely different technique and because you're still subconsciously selecting the same attributes or tonal qualities or characteristics of it you still kind of end up with like a similar net result even though you're using a completely different way of getting there right exactly which just uh, makes it more exploratory right like you still get to the same place but instead of it being work it was fun Mm -hmm. um so i'm curious uh and uh, actually um this reminds me of a study that i read once i didn't read it i heard about it i think on a podcast um where people uh in some city were told for like a month or something they were forced to find a new way to get to work and um it, it, it turned out that like most of them who did find a new way to get to work found a more efficient way to get there. And then after they were told they could go back to getting to work the original way that they normally get there, they decided to keep taking that new way to work that they found, right? Um, right. And I kind of feel like that that happens a lot when you try and find a new way of doing something uh, in anything, really. Uh, it's It's often the case that when you go back to doing it the old way you're actually like the new way is better or more fun or whatever right well and it's probably just because you get tired of it you know what i mean over over time and i i've definitely like 
it's weird. Like I'll try and like not do same things the same way over and over again. And then I'll kind of like forget the muscle memory and then I'll sit down in Ableton and it'll be like, Oh my God, I forget how to produce everything. And I like forget how to sound design entirely, <laughs> but it's almost nice. Cause it like forces you to then again, find new roots of new ways to find things. Right. Um, is when, when you're putting sets together, cause I imagine you do that a lot. Uh, yeah. do you sort of have the same, do you run into that same sort of problem where you're like, fuck, I'm sick of putting sets together the same way and try and like rethink the way that you do those? Um, so I definitely pick up like a handful of different like techniques and concepts and ideas that I put behind the way I arrange things. And I definitely like, I've noticed after every single tour I do with people, I'll pick up like a certain thing that I start doing in my sets consistently. So like for a really good example of that would be like with Gon well, after touring with Ganja, I realized like the importance of like melodic blending and like in key transitions and having like peaks and valleys like within my actual sets and focusing on pacing. So like for a while I would just go as hard as I fucking possibly could with as many doubles as possible and squeeze in as many tunes, but it would really like lose impact and dynamic range. Um and then another example like touring with Blunts and Blondes was like watching how effective like playing like the sing-along songs can be and like playing songs or at least intros that people know. Um, and then going from that intro into like a song that's like unreleased that no one would know, you know, like that's like one approach. And like another thing I picked up was the effect of like having like two really, really hectic, aggressive, heavy, mid range centric, like bro steppy kind of tunes as like a double drop. And if one of them has a mid drop build, bringing in like a super left field predominant sub kind of tune, um, right out of that. And like, you'll, I've, I've learned quickly that it's like, if you do that, you'll get like the fattest crowd response ever going from like really, really, really fucking busy to like a really, really open and quiet or minimal song. Um, so those are all just different techniques that I've kind of picked up and kind of added to the formula over time. Um, and going cycling through those different techniques and like approaches definitely is another way to reinforce pacing and, you know, diversity and taking people on a journey. Um, but like the main formula, the main formula I generally follow is just like finding an intro that people know, finding a drop that is either mine or something unreleased. That's really exciting. And then finding like a really good double for it. And if that's a mid and if it has a mid drop build, then going from there into something like way left field and Wookiee, you know what I mean? And then just like repeating that formula. Yeah. So actually that's something that Yeti told me a while ago too. Um, he, so I love Yeti sets. I uh, fucking love his sets too. Oh my God. <laughs> for, for the, for this reason, right. It's because they have so much contrast in them. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's, I, I understand what you mean. It's like when you're seeing somebody else's set, you can sometimes pick up like cool tricks off it. And yeah, that's one thing that I, one thing you're saying right now is one thing that I, I, I picked up as well, but just from him. Uh, and I, and then I've actually had the, the opposite thing too, where I, especially getting into doubles, which I only got into sort of halfway through last year. Right. My set kind of got to a point where there was like 20 or 30 minutes straight of doubles. Right. <laughs> and I was just like, at some point it just becomes ineffective, right? Because it's just, um, if, you're, if you're painting with the same colors the whole time, it just becomes gray kind of. It just gets boring, yeah. Like people yeah. get used to it. Definitely. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, it's, it's like another thing I've noticed where people are getting like, people expect like super hectic extended long late drops now because it's like, the two like or i would say the three things that come together that like get a crowd response concept wise is one the idea of having very loud then very quiet and then very loud mm -hmm. um and then two the concept of just like extreme juxtaposition and having something like a buildup that occupies like a ridiculous amount of high end or like upper mids and then when it cuts to the drop it's like mostly low end and lower mids like that juxtaposition um when paired with loud quiet loud is like a really effective way um and then I forget what the third thing was, but those two concepts for sure. <laughs> right. Um, 
So going back a little bit to when I was talking about your Instagram stories and stuff, I notice a lot of the time in them, it sounds like you have a TV on while you're producing. Is that (laughs) something that you do a lot? Yeah. And I feel like people probably think I'm a fucking sociopath for it. But like, I've just really, really, really extremely needed background noise, like no matter what I'm doing, like all the time forever. Um, hmm. Oh man, sorry. There's like a whole drama going on. I had to borrow computers, computers, CDJs for this uh, mix, and we were bringing them back home. And uh, they got like there was a miscommunication, and everyone is texting me all angry. Um, sorry, uh, but uh, fuck. What was I saying? Uh, how you need background noise when right. you right. Yes. Um, so yeah, so I've always just like need background noise. It's just like, I, I don't know if I'm like fear of loneliness or like fear of quiet or whatever it is, but like, I've just, uh, just growing up with TV on in the background, like my whole life. I've always like, if I'm at my, when I was at my parents' house, after I get home from high school, I get home, I'd put on the TV and I'd go on my computer. And it's like, I need those like two sources of noise. And it's, it almost circles back to the ADHD thing where it like, it's just something that like when there's too many thoughts and too many things in your brain and it's just too much to focus on one thing, you need something else in the background to like take out that background noise. So it's like it occupies part of your subconscious or just some of your brain waves to like decipher and figure out that information while you're focused on something else. And even now, especially when I produce, I just need to have background noise in the room, almost like as a mental thing, just so I don't feel maybe not lonely, but it's just it just makes me feel better. But it's funny how it's come into play with production because I, at least five or six times now I'll be watching it. I'll have a TV show on while I'll be producing and there'll be like a big pause before the drop. And like the TV show will like talk over like that open space over the drop. And I'll be like, <laughs> wait a minute, that fits fucking perfectly. And like straight up, like at least five or six times when like you hear always sunny samples in my song, mm. they actually like were placed like that accidentally like just when i was working on it and it just like worked out perfectly and i was like oh my god i need to sample that like right now um and it was definitely luck (laughs) it's funny how like um so here's the thing right is like the fact that that played like in that open space is pretty improbable like it's Mm -hmm. pretty unlikely right but it's very likely that that could have been almost anything and that you still would have been like that sick right right um, and I find the same thing happens while streaming a little bit. When I'm reading the chat, there'll there'll be people who just like say something like a it could just be a word that they say in their sentence that gives me an idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but they'll say something like, "Oh, you know, this would be sick with uh, you know granular fill right there, or, or just something that I probably wouldn't have thought of." Right. Um, and yeah, it gives me like some crazy idea to do like some whole other section that I probably wouldn't have thought of unless they had have said that in the chat. Right. Right. I feel like that that's probably a similar experience to having the TV on. It's like this, just these weird little things that happen that are seemingly like not as related to the idea coming out the other side as you would think. I don't know. And it, it reminds me, it reminds me, it's, it's, it's crazy how psychological or how mental the creative process is, you know, and it's, it really only takes like, one twig to snap in your subconscious to like trigger such an enormous idea, you know, out of nowhere. And you could be so stuck for so long and it's just the smallest little thing can be, just open a floodgate, you know? That's crazy, man. I, yeah, I'm going to have to try producing with the TV on. I've thought about it before. <laughs> so I, I have experimented with producing whilst playing music in like VLC media player or whatever behind Ableton. Wow. Like, I'll like just when be you're playing. doing like, like, like managerial mundane like tasks that don't require playback and you just listen to other music while doing it. Uh, I've, I've experimented with a bunch of stuff. Like one thing I've done is just gone to Spotify and just put on a playlist and just started writing a whole new tune over the top of shit, like whilst in Ableton. <laughs> and like, <laughs> I found that, 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 that can have some pretty interesting results, but yeah, I, 
I've never done it specifically just because I feel like I need noise or whatever. I've done it mostly just to try and fuck with my process a bit and figure figure out if I can do more interesting stuff. Um, man, have you been tested for COVID yet? <laughs> um, I have not. Um, I haven't really felt sick and I've definitely stayed inside really consistently. What's mm. funny is that like my allergies right now are fucking brutal. So like even this whole podcast, I've been uh, going through cough drops like a maniac and drinking water because like... <laughs> It's and it's it's been an issue while streaming too because like when I talk too much my throat just starts fucking hurting um, right. and it's definitely as a result of my vape probably primarily um, so I've kind of switched back to nicotine lozenges for the time being um, but I mean no I haven't um, I haven't really felt any I mean obviously you don't need to feel symptoms to necessarily have it but I've just been like really 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 cautious you know every time I go out I'm wearing gloves and a mask um, and I only go out when I absolutely need to um, but I mean it's definitely a very critical thing at least with my living situation because my girlfriend has a uh, asthma and a bunch of pre-existing like anemic kind of conditions um, mm. where she's been in the hospital just for the flu alone. And then my other roommate Lex only has one functioning lung. So like if either of them get COVID, like they're for sure going to die. So it's like a fit we, we take it very, very, very seriously. And even, and even I have like semi mild asthma. So that's like kind of a concern. Fuck. Yeah. I got tested right before this podcast actually. Wow. <clears throat> yeah. I drove. Uh, so they have drive through testing here in San Francisco now. And mm -hmm. um, basically, the it, the process was really easy. So you pull up to like a drive through sort of just like you're ordering food or whatever. But instead of them giving you food, they give you uh, a little tube. And inside the tube has like basically uh, like a, I would say it's like 1.75 times the size of a toothpick, both in width and length. But uh. it's like, but on either end is just like a, like a swab sort of like a cotton bud that you'll clean your ear out with you know like one of those swispers or whatever right um but it's like way smaller than a swisper and then they just basically say put this in your nose until you feel resistance so you have to put it in like fucking kind of far like that's um, terrifying that's then, i saw i saw the video of the one girl getting tested with it and it's like i still hold my nose when i jump into a pool so like <laughs> that's literally like my biggest fucking fear ever is like there was one time where i was having like really gnarly like uh like ear issues when i was going on planes like my ears were just in constant pain and i had to go to an ent and they had to put like one of those wiggly electronic cameras all the way up my nose into my sinus cavity and i had like a fucking panic attack about it that, like straight that is, up that sounds way worse Okay, that's nice. Because what I, it actually wasn't too bad. But uh, there's like another time where I, I, I forget what it's called, if it's like Zincam or something, but uh, there are these like little swabs that like you push all the way up your nose that like clean out your sinus cavity. And like I tried doing it and like I couldn't fucking do it. Like I just, I was too squeamish. I didn't have the fucking stomach for it. Well, the cool thing is they let me do it myself. So right. um, yeah, so I could do it like gently and stuff like that. My housemate also got tested the other day and they said uh, they didn't let him do it himself. So they like just I'd aggressively... Almost like I would rather it. them do it because I don't think I'd have the the courage to do it myself, you know? I feel that way with like a needle or something. Like I, I don't think I could, yeah. could give myself like a tetanus shot or like a blood test or anything. But I, I think like, a, yeah, I mean, obviously putting us, I've put fucking pieces of spaghetti up my nose for fun and shit. So like, <laughs> uh, have you ever done that? Like, I don't, you probably haven't, but like, I'm, I don't know why the fuck I've done this, but like I've snorted a piece of spaghetti and then like, you know, you spit it out your throat and then you can kind what? of floss your head. Oh my God. It's terrifying. <laughs> the one thing I used to do is I would get like a long piece of spaghetti and I would swallow it and I would like hold one end out of my mouth, but like also swallow the other end and then pull it back out for that sensation. Like a but, cooked piece of spaghetti, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, 
But damn, no, I'm I'm like my sinuses are so sensitive, and I'm I just I'm I'm such a squeamish person in that regard. Like I I, I really do mean it. Like I still hold my nose when I jump in a pool. So like, mm. man, I don't think I can. Like I, I and it's funny because like I it's the one loophole with that is I some I get like sick all the time basically just because I have enormous tonsils and terrible sinus cavities. Um, and I do like that sinus rinse stuff like a lot. That's like really really effective. Um. But I saw that video of the cotton swab and I was like, oh my God, if I get COVID, I'm <laughs> fucked. There's no way. Yeah. Well, the, yeah, the fucking problem, right, is that you can have it, feel no symptoms and still be a vector. So right. that's kind of why I was getting tested is just to make sure that I'm not being, because I'm, I mean, I'm, I still go, I go out like basically every day, right? Like I go out mm. to get like, you know, food from the shop or like uh, just to go for a walk, like and do some exercise or Right. Um, you know, if I need to go like mail a check or like fucking, you know, I have to go drop my tax form off tomorrow, for instance, like there's reasons I still have to go out. Um, right. So I just wanted to make sure that I'm not being a dick to people and killing people. Yeah, no, that makes, makes sense. I feel like I should, but uh, I'm a, I'm a giant pussy for sure. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's not that bad. I mean, honestly, like the camera thing sounds way fucking worse. Right. So I, th I think you'll be fine if you do decide. Do they have um, testing in Philly yet? I don't know what the deal is up there. I don't. I don't know, but they definitely fucking should um, because Philadelphia <laughs> is one of the worst cities hit. Um, I mean, we're pretty close to New York, which is like we're like eighty or ninety percent of all of the COVID cases are. Um, Fuck yeah. And we're expected to get like hit with a pretty gnarly wave um, after New York kind of settles down. And it's funny because I was I was driving back from the recording space today, and I'm looking around, and it's like everyone wearing a mask either doesn't have it covering their face or it's a fabric mask that doesn't do shit um, right. or like their nose is hanging out the top and it doesn't do Dude, shit. That's the fucking dumbest shit, right? Like I've seen so many people walking around with their nose out the top and I know why they do it. It's because um, especially if you wear glasses and you don't have your nose hanging out the top, it fogs up your glasses. Mm -hmm. And if you aren't wearing glasses, then it just makes your eyes hot because like all the like hot steam from your nose or your mouth wherever you're blowing hot air from for some reason just all comes out the fucking top of the mask i don't know why because right. it's like your nose is facing down your mouth is facing forward so i have no idea why it goes up i guess like i don't know i'm not a physicist but um yeah i don't know so that's why they do it but yeah it completely makes it ineffective then because then all the shit coming out of your nose is just going into the air like it normally does and it was funny i posted like a video of me doing like a kendama trick and at the end my jaw dropped because i was so excited and how hard i dropped my jaw pushed my nose out of the top of the mask and there were like a <laughs> bunch of there were like a bunch of comments like you fucking idiot like the mask doesn't do shit if your nose is out the top and i was like well first off i'm at home right now and second <laughs> off my jaw dropped so my nose was pushed out and i put it back over at the end but, uh, <laughs> why yeah. are you wearing a mask at home um, so what I've come to learn as a, as a avid pollen struggler, um, it really fucking helps with other things aside from, you know, disease prevention. Like I, I put my mask on when I go out and walk my dog and, uh, um, Paul, I just, I don't get hit with allergies nearly as bad. You know, it, it filters out so many other things aside from diseases. I mean, primarily pollen that it's, it's been really helping this allergy season, particularly, um, with making things better. And I almost want to put my mask on now because of how badly my throat hurts and how much pollen is destroying my face currently. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, fair enough. Well, shit, man. Um, that's about an hour, so maybe we should wrap it. Wait, yeah, for sure. Wait, I mean, yeah. honestly, yeah, I'm down because my fucking... I gotta, I'm literally, like, the second I'm done with this, I'm going to go gargle salt water. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck. Cool, man. Well, um, yeah, thanks again for coming on. I really appreciate it. I'm sure many people will find a lot of the stories interesting. I certainly did, so... 
Very cool. I mean, thank you so much for having me. It was an honor. I mean, like, it's I, I still like there's there's a small part of me that that truly does fanboy every time I talk to you. And I've, I know I've told you this before, but it's like legitimately like I would almost say my entire workflow is modeled after watching your YouTube tutorials, especially the, the one writer's block video from like years back. I would oh, literally yeah, nice. when I was learning, I would literally just fall asleep watching you produce for like hours and hours <laughs> and hours for like months at a time. Um, and it's, it's, it's still just crazy and surreal to even be talking to you because it's like, damn, dude, like you taught me how to produce and you don't even know it. <laughs> well, now, now you do. <laughs> right. So my, my workflow is pretty much just born out of slow computers. And I was actually um, talking to my girlfriend, Jan, about this yesterday. I was like, um, you know how in production when like a lot of the things that still hang around today, right? Like resampling, for instance, mm -hmm. is, is a big one. Um, the whole reason you resampled back in the day was because you had like 200 megabytes of RAM and, yep. uh, you know, your computer just could not handle two MIDI tracks at once. Like, <laughs> yep. I've, and, and it, I've definitely had computers where it was like, I literally could have one MIDI lane at a time and it was just not possible yeah. otherwise. So, so here's a really interesting thing. She's a software developer, right? So mm -hmm. um, I, I asked her, I was like, is there anything like that like that's the equivalent of that concept in programming and she said uh yeah actually like code from like 20 years ago is generally like way more stable and smoother running and whatever than code written today because they were writing it to run on fucking terrible computers so they had to do like a ton of optimization tricks in the code um, that's very interesting yeah so actually like software that was built a long time ago that's why it usually runs so much better on computers today versus like software that you try and run that was made like last week on your new computer and it's still you know buggy and doesn't run very well and all that kind of stuff it's just like cars <laughs> uh, like a volvo from sense. like like a volvo from the 80s will literally never ever ever die ever like there's a lot of cars <laughs> that like then they when they were built in the 80s or 90s they're just like indestructible tanks uh, that will never ever break. I mean, like I think like all the world record holding cars that lasted the longest were like from the eight, like Volvos from the eighties or nineties, just because they were built so fucking well. Um, and then they were like, oh right, money. So then they stopped. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, they they start like uh, putting in like planned obsolescence and shit like that, where stuff just exactly. seems like designed to break after like ten years or some shit. It's like the uh, it's like a universally understood fact that the 2015 MacBook Pro is the most superior computer Apple has ever designed. <laughs> yeah, totally. There's still like people running fucking live shows off it and shit. Like literally, like a Brock. I know Boogie T still has a 2015 MacBook Pro, and like literally, I I my last computer before the one. Well, I have a piece and a macbook now but the macbook i have the macbook i had before the one i have now i bought like last year and it's just unfortunate like it fell and like broke um which is the only reason i don't use it but i literally just bought like a 2015 like you can get like a macbook that would cost five thousand dollars now you can get a 2015 one with identical specs for like nine hundred dollars on ebay and it runs better straight and has more yeah. usb ports <laughs> Right. Yeah. yeah. 2015 <laughs> MacBooks, man. They're the truth. It's crazy. Like they're like I like if I were to buy a new MacBook today, uh I would buy a 2015 maxed out MacBook for sure. Fuck yeah. Pro strats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool, man. All right. Well, yeah, thanks again, man. I appreciate it. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Have a good one. You too. Thanks, man. Hey, thanks for listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. These episodes are edited and uploaded twice a week by Robert Fumo of 303podpro.com. 
You can also support the show, get early access to episodes and hear bonus content by going to patreon.com forward slash Tunes and becoming a patron. Uh, please rate and review on iTunes unless you're going to be a little shit about it. And all the links to my various platforms are at mrbillstunes.com. Thank you. Thank you.